Well, all right. Good morning, Hellos Church. My name is Jeff. It's my privilege and my pleasure to serve as one of the pastors here with our church. Welcome to our gathering uh, this morning. I do want to uh, kind of caution you a bit on the front end to kind of buckle up this morning because we're in for uh, a bit of a wild ride in a sense as we're introduced to uh, the second and third judges in this book that we've been journeying through called Judges. And things are going to get a bit graphic. In fact, you may hear a bit more than you want to hear it. 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning, but that's where we're at. That's where we're headed, and we're going to dive right in. So with that being said, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Judges chapter 3, verses 12 to 31. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with them, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites served King Eglon of Moab 18 years. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he raised up Ehud, son of Jerah, a left-handed Benjamite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him with the tribute for King Eglon of Moab. Ehud made himself a double-edged sword 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and brought the tribute to King Eglon of Moab, who was an extremely fat man. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king said, Silence, and all his attendants left him. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his upstairs room where it was cool. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade. And Eglon's fat closed in over it so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly, and the waste came out. Ehud escaped by way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. Ehud was gone when Eglon's servants came in. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought he was relieving himself in the cool room. The servants waited until they became embarrassed and saw that he, was, he had still not opened the doors to the upstairs room. So they took the key and opened the door, and there was their Lord lying dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while the servants waited. He passed the Jordan near the carved images and reached Sirah. After he arrived, he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down with him from the hill country, and he became their leader. He told them, follow me, because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. So they followed him captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all stout and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. Moab Moab became subject to Israel that day, and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anath, became judge. He also delivered Israel, striking down 600 Philistines with, with a cattle prod. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
Now, most typically at the beginning of a sermon, you'll hear Pastor Andrew or Pastor Bryant or myself um, kind of giving some sort of introduction, right? An opening illustration, making some opening remarks that are intended to create a connection uh, between you, the listener, and, and between the passage that will be under study and bet uh, between, with the, the message that will be coming your way. But as I thought and prayed about this particular passage this week over the, past, uh, over the course of the past several days, what I began to realize is that uh, this passage here, it doesn't, it doesn't really need an introduction. This passage here, it doesn't need an opening illustration. No, what this passage here needs most is a justification. This passage needs an explanation. It demands an explanation, in fact. This passage is offensive from, from start to finish with its needless violence with its graphic descriptions and its revolting imagery in some cases? Did the narrator really need to kind of shift into slow motion in verse 22 as the handle of the sword went in after the blade and the fat closed in after it and the waist came out? Did we really need to know that? And then there's Eglon's servants snickering about the stench having no idea that their king at this point was lying in his own excrement, dead from disembowelment as Ehud the assassin slipped away before anybody knew what had happened. It sounds like a Hollywood movie script or a new Netflix original written for the twisted entertainment of the masses. There's motive, there's opportunity, there's drama and daring and death. The narrator of the book of Judges, the one telling this story, he could be writing for Hollywood, that is to be sure. But what is he doing writing for God? What is this story doing in the Bible in the first place? Honestly, friends, what justification could there be for a story like this and for a book like Judges in the very same Bible where Jesus tells you and I that we're to love our enemies, we're to turn the other cheek, and we're, we're to leave vengeance to him? Wouldn't it be easier, wouldn't it be better just to, just to focus on Jesus? Back in the first century, 2,000 years ago, a guy named Marcion thought so. He could not find or see any justification at all for stories like these. And so, so he found a way to get rid of them. He said that's the Old Testament, that's the angry and jealous God of the Old Testament who is a different God than the God of the New Testament. So he, he said, I'm just going to get rid of those. I'm going to focus on Jesus and the New Testament only. And people have been doing really the same sorts of things ever since in various uh, ways, deciding for themselves which parts of the Bible they like and which parts they, they don't like. But friends, that's a very slippery slope and a very dangerous one too. Because once you start picking and choosing which parts of the Bible you like and which parts you don't, where do you stop? Can you stop? What happens is that you end up putting yourself in authority over the scriptures rather than the other way around. And as you do that, you inevitably find yourself believing not in the God of the Bible, but in a God of your own design and your own imagination. Friends, if we're to have any integrity about the Bible and any trust in its authority, which we are committed to here at the Hallows Church, we're not going to shy away from uh, any book or any passage because it may be uncomfortable or it may be unsettling to our modern sensibilities. No, we intend to be a people who press in all the more to passages like 2 Timothy uh, 3.16 that says, it says all scripture 
not some scripture, but all scripture is inspired by God and is, is profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. And so even with hard and uncomfortable passage, passages like uh, the one today, and there will be many more coming in the, in the coming weeks, we do believe that every passage in the Bible is in one way or another profitable for us. And so as we approach today's passage from this sort of posture, I believe uh, on the one hand, it's going, to, it's going to hold up a mirror to us as it shows us something about ourselves. It's going to show us in this King Eglon of Moab, it's going to show us something about sin, I think. And in, the, in this deliverer named Ehud, it's going to show us something about Jesus. And as we move through this passage, I'd like to draw out three things about God's deliverance of his people the recurring reasons for deliverance, the subversive means of deliverance, how it comes about, and the invaluable lessons of deliverance. In other words, what we can learn from all this. First, the, re the recurring reasons for deliverance. Last week, we met the first judge in this book, right? In verses 7 to 11, his name was, was Othniel. And God raised him up, and Othniel overpowered the enemy of God's people and brought them peace. It was a short story, right? It was a simple and straightforward story. There was not a lot of drama or controversy in it. And I do want to take a moment to revisit that story of Othniel uh, because I want you to see something. I want you to see a certain pattern uh, that emerges from that story that's going to carry through today's story too, and it's going to carry uh, through the entire book of Judges, in fact, as we journey through it. If your Bibles are open, turn back a few verses to last week's passage, verses 7 to 11, and let me, let me show you what I mean. The pattern starts in verse 7 with what we're going to call apostasy. Apostasy, it means abandonment. It means to abandon God, and that's, that's exactly what the people were doing. In verse 7, it said, they forgot the Lord their God, and they did evil. And so you see, what they knew in their heads was no longer real in their hearts, they may have been going to church on Sundays, but during the week they were serving and worshiping uh, the gods of the surrounding culture. They were assimilating to the uh, society around them. And what happened as a result? Bondage happened. Verse 8 says, The Lord sold them. He gave them over to King Cushan Rishathaim. He gave them over to their own pursuits because they were no longer pursuing him. He handed them over to a foreign king who ruled over them and oppressed them for many, many years until we see in verse 9 that the people of God cried out to him. You see them finally crying out to the Lord in their desperation. And it's interesting here and throughout the book of Judges, there's a sense in which this crying out, which we're going to see again and again, is not so much repentance uh, for their sin as much as it's despair and, and distress over their suffering and over their circumstances. But nevertheless... The Lord, in all his faithfulness, he hears their cries. He responds to them in their afflictions, whether they deserve it or not. And it says in verse 9, the Lord raised up a deliverer. And that word also means savior. He raised up a savior to bring deliverance for his people. And Othniel, he goes to battle for God's people and overpowers their enemies. He delivers them from their oppressors. And what was the result of that deliverance? To keep this acronym going, let's call it EASE. 
Verse 11 says that they had peace for 40 years. They were given rest and relief and ease from, from that which had been dominating them and controlling them. And so that's the pattern, A, B, C, D, E, right? Apostasy, bondage, crying out to the Lord, deliverance, and ease. And I want you to, I want you to watch for the same pattern today as we explore this passage. And it's actually hard to miss in today's passage. In fact, you uh, see quite quickly the A, the B, the C, and the D in the first three verses of this passage, verses 12 to 15. But I want you to watch for this pattern as well, not only today, but as we continue this journey through the book of Judges, because it's going to uh, emerge again and again. And friends, as we'll talk about in a bit, I want to ask you to also watch for this pattern, not only today, not only in the weeks to come, but I want you to I want you to watch out for this pattern in your own spiritual lives too. Because if we're going to be honest with each other, you will find it there in different ways and at different times. But as we explore this passage today, verses 12 to 31, I really want to dial in on the B and the D today. The bondage under King Eglon and the deliverance by this man named Ehud. Now we do know a couple of things about King Eglon of Moab. We're told in verses 12 to 14 that the Lord gave him power over God's own people as a result of the choices his people were making. And God's people, we're told, served King Eglon under his oppression for 18 years. Another thing we know about King Eglon, we're told in verse 17, and that is he was, he was an extremely fat man, it says. And Eglon wasn't the only one who was fat. In fact, down in verse 29, it says that all of Eglon's men uh, were stout men, it says in the CSB translation. Other translations say strong men, others say robust. But the word there, the Hebrew word, it means fat, it means large. And so King Eglon and his men, King Eglon and his armies, they were, they were very well-fed men. And I don't believe we're being told this because the author had some sort of juvenile sense of humor. Rather, I believe there's a theological point being made here. And we can only begin to see that when we consider what it says in verse 15. It says, it says the Israelites sent Ehud with the tribute to King Eglon of Moab. Ehud was sent to bring the tribute to Eglon on behalf of the people of Israel. And this is not really a word that we use today, right? Not in this sense, but you need to understand here what it was. A tribute, it was a gift. It was, it was an offering that a conquered people would regularly bring before the king who had conquered them. And it's a way, really, of them acknowledging him as their ruler. It's a way uh, to acknowledge that they knew their place and they had accepted their place in kind of the new order of things. And so to, to bring tribute was essentially to bow down and to, and to bring an offering to the one who had power over you. And at the times, the tribute... Uh, at times, the tribute would include things like gold and silver, and it may have there too. But the word used here in verse 15, uh, it's a word that's most typically uh, used to refer to a food offering, a meal offering, an offering of the first fruits, the very best of the crops that the Israelites had been growing in the surrounding land. And you, and you need to know that this surrounding land was supposed to be their land, Right? When it says in verse 13 that Eglon attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms, that's referring to the city of Jericho in the land of Canaan, which is, 
just part of the land promised by God to his people, right? A land of abundance, a land we're told that was flowing with milk and honey. And under Joshua's leadership, they had taken that land, but now they had lost that land to King Eglon of Moab. Why? Because of their apostasy and their assimilation to the surrounding culture. They found themselves in bondage, bringing tribute, bringing their first fruits and giving them to this foreign king. And you need to understand that to the Jewish people, the first fruits of every crop, they were supposed to be considered as holy and set apart for the Lord. The first fruits were supposed to be offered to God in appreciation for his goodness and his provision. And so we mustn't miss this key point here. The very reason that Eglon and his men were so fat is because they were uh, taking from God's people what was supposed to be going to God and what was supposed to be going to them too. King Eglon and the Moabites were getting fat on the abundance of the land of Canaan and on the backs of God's people. And for 18 years, God's people bowed down to Eglon and offered to Eglon that which they knew belonged to God. Nevertheless, nevertheless, God heard them in their misery, even if that misery was self-inflicted. And in verse 15, it says God did something about it. He raised up a most unlikely deliverer who's going to show us how God at times acts in the most uh, subversive of ways, using the most subversive of means to bring deliverance to his people. In verse 15, we're told the Lord raised up Ehud, son of Jerah, a left-handed Benjamite as a deliverer for them. And the fact that it says Ehud was left-handed is quite significant for us. To be a left-handed person was unusual in the first place then. It was, in fact, uh, a peculiarity, a, a negative thing, really. If you look up references in the Bible to the right hand, you will find that they are all quite positive. The right hand was considered the hand of power, the hand of ability, uh, the hand of agility. You find God swearing by his right hand. You find he has pleasures at his right hand, and his chosen one sits at his right hand too. But interestingly, in Judges chapter 3, verse 15, the word, word translated there as left-handed in your Bible, it does not actually mean left-handed. No, the word literally means hindered in the right hand. It literally means he was impaired in his right hand. And because of this, many commentators believe that Ehud's right hand may very well have been paralyzed or deformed in some way. Many believe that Ehud, in fact, was a handicapped person. And in that day, handicapped people were seen as ineffective and unimportant. They were often mistreated and marginalized. And so it is quite likely that nobody would have looked up to Ehud or naturally chosen to follow him, and yet this was God's choice, whom he raises up as a most unlikely deliverer. And think about this. Picture this scene. Ehud was the one bringing the tribute to King Eglon. And so how fitting that a crippled man would be the one doing this. Because what could more graphically represent the subservience and the subjugation of Israel to King Eglon and the Moabites than a crippled man bowing to him and bringing uh, to him the tribute, the very offering that should have been going to God? Surely King Eglon was thinking, yeah, that's right. This is, what, this is what I've reduced Israel to. And so we see here in Ehud coming, uh, we see Ehud coming onto the scene 
very subversively in the, in the semblance of weakness. Why else would the king's men not have searched Ehud for weapons? How else could Ehud have, have possibly gained a private meeting with uh, Eglon when he returned to the king in verse 19 and told him he had a secret uh, message for him? How could, how could Ehud had pulled that, had pulled that off if, unless Ehud was seen as, as utterly harmless? This is why I think in verse 20, Eglon is comfortable sending his servants away. He wanted to hear this secret message, this uh, message from God. And it says that, that once they were alone, Ehud approached the king. He stood up from his throne. Ehud took the double-edged sword that he had hidden away, and he plunged it into the belly of King Eglon. And so this Ehud, who at first glance would seem entirely uh, unfit to deliver God's people. Ultimately, he delivers them in the most fitting of ways. In fact, think about this. The judgment that comes against King Eglon comes in a way that is, is finely calibrated to fit his crimes. And this, I think, is why we get the graphic description of his death beginning in verse 21. The sword went in, the handle went in after it, and the fat closed over the handle, and it would not come out. This is not a gratuitous or unwarranted scene of violence. No, a theological point is being made here. There are many ways God could have judged Ehud. Many ways God could have removed him from power and delivered his people. But this, this is how it happened. And so you see, Eglon lived by his belly, and he lived for his belly, all on the backs of God's people and their labor. And we see here that Eglon is ultimately killed by his belly too. His treatment of the people of Israel that left him fat and Israel starving was ultimately his, his demise and his downfall. The sword went in and it stayed in and it didn't come out, but something else came out. What did come out was his own waste as he lost control of his bowels. And in the providence of God, it is this utterly humiliating end to King Eglon of Moab that would allow Ehud the opportunity to escape. In verses 24 and 25, Eglon's attendants were snickering. They were embarrassed. It says they assumed Eglon was relieving himself because of the stench in the air, so they left him alone to finish his business. And this allowed just the right amount of time for Ehud to slip out and to, and to slip away. And Ehud did all of this on his own initiative, as far as we know. Nobody uh, knew he was planning this, as far as we can tell. And this personal initiative on the part of Ehud seems to have effectively uh, decided the issue in advance. We're told he rallied the Israelites in the hill country of Ephraim in verse 27. He becomes their leader, and they follow him into battle, defeating the Moabites, 10,000 of them. And it says Moab became subject to Israel that day, and the land had peace for for 80 years, it says in verse 30. So you see God's subversive means of delivering his people. He used a most unlikely man in Ehud, a man of weakness. But this Ehud, he was willing to surrender his weakness and to trust in God's strength. And Ehud knew it wasn't him who pulled this off. In verse 28, he tells the Israelites, the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. And then, not to pass over verse 31, this single final verse of this passage, it, it introduces us to the third 
judge in this book. Shamgar is his name. He's, he's in fact, the first of what we call the minor judges, and we'll see these minor judges. The description of them is very brief, and they do not follow the same pattern that we talked about earlier. Now, we don't know much at all about Shamgar, but what we do know is that he was an outsider. He was probably not an Israelite, as believed. And yet he, too, rescued and delivered the people of Israel. And whereas Ehud delivered Israel through a single-handed act of really diplomatic treachery, Shamgar delivers Israel through a single-handed act with an agricultural instrument, a cattle prod. Interestingly, this Hebrew word for cattle prod is derived from a word that literally means an instrument of instruction or an instrument of learning. And the Philistines, just like King Eglon of Moab, quite literally got the point of the lesson. They both received a very pointed message from God. God will deliver his people from all that binds them, and he will do so through unlikely men and through unlikely means. Now, this does not mean that God approves of every method necessarily used by these men here and elsewhere. We have to remember that God uses flawed people to accomplish his purposes, and he does so at times without violating their personal freedom or their personal uh, responsibility. That's how big this God is. He's able to work all things together to get what he wants in the end, and what he wants in the end is deliverance and rest for, for his people. Now, finally, I said earlier that each and every passage in the Bible is profitable for us. And so how do we profit from this uh, particular passage today? As we finish up, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the invaluable lessons of deliverance and, and what we can learn here. First, we learn something, I think, about ourselves. We talked about the pattern earlier, A, B, C, D, E, right? I told you to be watching for it as we uh, journey through the book of Judges, but, but I want to ask you uh, to also be watching for it in your own spiritual lives, too. We saw today, and we'll continue to see, that the people of Israel had a recurring need for deliverance from the things that were binding them and oppressing them. And in a very real way, we need that very same thing. And the reasons we do, too, is that the fallen human heart, it all too easily drifts, doesn't it? There's a, there's a certain default drift, in fact, in our hearts toward spiritual decline and toward spiritual distraction, just like we saw with the Israelites. We do not drift naturally toward spiritual health or spiritual growth. In fact, if we are not intentional, we drift in the other direction entirely. D.A. Carson captured this, what captures this well when he says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the uh, Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. And so it's critical, I think, that we understand this dynamic of our own hearts. We need to be aware of this uh, drift or else you and I will find ourselves again and again getting uh, caught up in its currents. Without the proper attention and care of our own hearts, we too find ourselves forgetting the Lord our God, putting our trust in the many little g-gods of our culture, and becoming ensnared and enslaved in bondage to them. 
In fact, this passage shows us not only something about ourselves and our spiritual uh, drift, it also shows us something about the pull and about the power of sin and what happens if we let this spiritual drift go unchecked in our lives. The things that King Eglon was doing to God's people, looting them, exploiting them, oppressing them, these are actually showing us a picture of sin and what it wants to do to us. Eglon demanded the first fruits of those he had conquered. He expected the very uh, best of the best that they had to offer. And what did Eglon give them in return? He gave them slavery. He gave them bondage. And sin does the very same too, doesn't it? Just like King Eglon, sin expects you to pay tribute to it. Sin is seeking after your first fruits. And it will eventually demand them of you, in fact. Just like King Eglon's sin is going after the very best you have to offer. Not the, not the very best of your crops, of course, but, but the very best of your affections. The very best of your attention, your energy. Sin is going after the first fruits of, of your heart. It's going after the things that belong to God and that you know deep down belong to God and should be uh, given to God, but you're not giving them fully to God. And just like King Eglon's sin will ask you to bow down, it will ask you to acknowledge who's in charge, to acknowledge that you've accepted your place under its rule. And you may never see it that way or say it that way, but, but you and I, we are acknowledging, we are acknowledging by the choices we make and the ways that we spend our time and our money and our energy, we are acknowledging who's really in control of our hearts and our lives. And so the question I'd like to ask you today is who or what are you paying tribute to? Who are you offering your first fruits to? Who or what is controlling your heart today? Is it a person that you want? Is it a passion that you have? Is it power? Is it career? Is it success? Is it your social media feed and the approval of others? Is it sex or drugs or alcohol? If you're bowing down and paying tribute to anyone or anything other than, other than Jesus, you are drifting toward bondage and oppression if you are not already there. And if you're already there, won't you break out of the cycle by, by crying out to him today? Because if we learn anything from this story and from the book of Judges more generally, it's it's God's relentless commitment to rescue his people in the most unexpected of ways, whether they deserve it or not, as they cry out to him in their afflictions and in their need. Now, for some of you, is this not precisely the good news that you need? Troubles, whether a result of your own missteps or not, you have a compassionate God who, who hears your cries for help and comes to save you in your distress. It took the Israelites 18 years before they cried out to him. How long has it been for you? How do you need to cry out to him today? And what are you waiting for? Finally, this passage teaches us something not only about ourselves and not only about sin, but also, also about our Savior. In this story we've been exploring today, what at first appeared to be a brutal and disgusting tale of violence turns out to be a theological drama, really, where God's enemies receive the judgment they deserve while God's people receive release from their bondage. 
and they receive that deliverance through a most subversive savior in this man named Ehud. Think about this with me. Who would have looked at Ehud, a crippled Benjamite, and seen him as the savior, of, as the deliverer of God's people? This guy couldn't even shake a person's hand. And that's who's going to rescue God's people? You've got to be kidding me. But as the Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, God's power is perfected in the weaknesses of men. And Ehud, he came in weakness, trusting in God's strength, and he used that weakness and that trust to his advantage. Ehud is really pointing us to an even better Savior to come, a better deliverer who would slay the enemies of God's people by the most subversive means imaginable. Because, friends, who would have possibly looked at Jesus, a condemned criminal, abandoned by his friends, mocked and spat upon by the Roman soldiers, unjustly tried and strung up naked between two thieves, bloodied and beaten to death? Who would have looked up at that Jesus hanging and dying on a cross and said, oh, yes, of course, that's God's ultimate rescue plan for humanity. There it is. Jesus is our true and better subversive Savior. He came in weakness. He came in humility. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to bring judgment, but to bear it. He brought light into darkness. He achieved victory through defeat. Nobody would have thought it. You can't make this stuff up if you try. God, God confounds human wisdom in his subversive and mysterious ways. That's why we're told in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, that it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is also why we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. At times it can seem hard to figure out what God is up to in our lives, but it, but it makes sense when you think about it. It probably shouldn't surprise us. After all, Jesus Christ dying on a cross is the ultimate of expression of God working in the most unlikely and the most unexpected and the most subversive of ways in this world and in our lives. At the cross, our God took the most evil act of human history. And what did he do with it three days later? He turned it into the most beautiful. And if that's how he works on a cosmic scale, you can be sure he's working uh, that way on your scale too. Be patient, be watchful. The cross reminds us that even in the most dark and difficult moments of our lives, God is at work in ways that we cannot always see or understand. Once you go to him today, once you cry out to him today, he can give you the rescue, rest that you're looking for and that you need most of all. Let's pray.